This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. In somewhat of a surprising announcement, United Healthcare said it was pulling out of the Affordable Care Act in 2017 in all but a few states. Their losses for last year and this one are expected to be around $1.1 billion. So the questions are starting to swirl. Is this the beginning of the end for a program, or is there a way to change it and make it function better? To discuss this issue, we're joined in the studio by Robert Town, Professor of Healthcare Management here at Wharton. And then joining us on the phone is Catherine Hempstead, who directs the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's work on healthcare insurance coverage. Bob, great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Catherine, great to have you on the phone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Bob, your reaction to the announcement by United Healthcare? Well, I, you know, I don't think it's a terrible surprise. Uh, United's always been a bit ambivalent about the ACA marketplaces. Uh, it was late to um, enter the, many of the marketplaces. Um, and uh, it was never uh, a big player in almost every place it was. So it really never achieved the scale and its plans were never, you know, that popular. So, you know, like like many businesses where they find out their demand is not sufficient, that, you know, it makes sense for them to exit. Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. And looking at some of the particular markets where they, you know, exited, you can see that they had some real difficulties with stable enrollment patterns or lack thereof and high utilization. And I think in particularly some of the southern states, they were in a price position where they were, you know, kind of pricing on the low side. And it looked like it was going to be maybe difficult for them to make the kinds of increases that they would really need to make in their rates to kind of have a go at it. Although, you know, I think a few of the states I've heard that they're staying in don't really look all that different. So I think you can only read the tea leaves so much figuring out where they're staying and where they're going. And I don't think we quite know where they're staying yet. And it could have, um, you know, uh, some consideration of some of their group business. So there could be lots of reasons for, you know, some of the state-specific things. But looking at lots of the markets where they were in, you could see that they were not having a good experience. And I guess we won't really know the full scope of this until the uh, until the May 11th deadline uh, for 2017, correct? That's right. And different states have different timelines for when these decisions have to be made. In terms of, of as you said, Bob, that they're – their market share, it wasn't great. So I guess in some respects, were they playing a little bit of an uphill battle against companies like like Blue Cross Blue Shield and Aetna in a lot of these locations? Absolutely. And it's actually, you know, United United's business model broadly is to, you know, have a, a modest share in a lot of places. Most, yeah. you know, most other insurers try to have kind of a large share in a small number of places like the Blue Crosses. Um, and so that kind of strategy is probably not very uh, feasible on the exchanges as far as, you know, for uh, having longevity. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's part of the reason they were a little bit ambivalent about the exchanges. Right. Um, and so th that's just not kind of – the exchanges are not set up for them to do well. Uh, 
But the fact that that they are citing the the financial losses and obviously their model, uh, as you said, didn't really play into uh, being that successful to begin with. The the fact that they're already stating that their losses through this coming year are going to be one point one billion dollars. That does send out potentially a little bit of a precedent for other companies, especially if they are seeing losses going forward in in the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think. it's not surprising that you're going to see net exit in these uh, in plans over time in, in the exchanges. Um, you know, a lot of insurers entered and wanted to see, you know, can we make a go of it? Is this yeah. going to be a profitable business line for us? Um, and many will find it's not a profitable business line and they'll exit. And, you know, that's something to be expected. And I think no one should be shocked by there being a little creative destruction on the exchanges. Could we see, Catherine, it, it, depending on... Uh, what states United does decide to say, and could we see them change their tactic a little bit, as, as Bob said, and maybe focus more on just a few states and, and boosting the numbers that they try and enroll in those particular states? I, I think we might see that, and I also think we might see some changes in the business model and the way in which you know United and other companies try to approach this market. One of the things that I thought was very significant and kind of an encouraging sign was that it seems like United is keeping its Harkin products in the Georgia market, and that's kind of right. a you know a new approach to selling insurance directly to consumers. And I think that it's possible that some of the challenges of this market are going to require you know not just United but lots of challenges to re- lots of carriers to rethink how they approach actually selling insurance to people. I think right now you see sort of an attempt to transport the product directly from the employer-sponsored market and try to sell it to consumers, and I think. One of the big challenges with the market is that, you know, not everybody that should be in it is in it. And I think, you know, one of the reasons is that the the sell is not that compelling for a lot of consumers. So I think looking at a product like Harkin, and there are a couple of other, you know, kind of nascent examples of a kind of new approach to selling health insurance directly to consumers, you actually see the articulation of a brand and a specific kind of customer experience Mm -hmm. that so far has really been lacking in all of the carriers' approaches. And I think that, you know, it would be interesting to see, you know, what Bob said about creative destruction is, you know, kind of the the, the story that we might be starting to see is actually seeing some real transformation in how the carriers are approaching the market and, and what they're actually trying to offer consumers. Bob? Yeah, I think it's about, you know, the learning process that insurers are going to have to go through to succeed on the exchanges. It's, it's as Kathy said, it's a different segment uh, and approaches that they've taken to the group market and uh, previous approaches to the individual market may not play well here. And so there's going to be some experimentation and there's going to be new types of plans and yeah. new network structures uh, that uh, insurers are going to have to experiment with to see kind of what is popular, what works, and how they can manage the risk that they're going to be exposed to on the exchanges. So, Catherine, this is a, a, still a little bit of a, a work in progress. Uh, especially for the insurers in your mind, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, just looking at, like, property and casualty insurance, which has been selling to consumers, you know, for for a bit longer, you you can see that even though, in a way, you interact with that product a lot less frequently, they they're able to really offer consumers some information about a customer experience that they that they might expect and, you know, make make um you know, 
presentations to consumers that might inspire some brand loyalty and get people to, you know, to sort of stick with a company and, and to, um, you know, to anticipate a certain kind of experience. And I just don't think we're there yet with health insurance. And I think that what the current presentation of information is sort of a fact pattern about a set of prices that they've negotiated with providers. And I think it's, you know, primarily of interest to people who are sick or worried or anticipating using health insurance, but yeah. for people that don't have, you know, necessarily a consistent history of having health insurance and certainly not buying it themselves, I just, I just don't think it's sufficiently compelling to get the part of the risk pool that you want in the market consistently in there. But it's interesting because when you when you think about things, and you referred to using the term brand loyalty, uh, health insurance and coverage is probably not one of the things you think of because people most associate it with, okay, I want to have good coverage, but I want to have the best deal. I want to be able to you know, get the most for the, for the lowest amount of premiums that I'm going to pay. So can, can these companies build, quote unquote, brand loyalty in this type of segment? I mean, I think the, the what you see a company like Harkin or maybe Zoom, and there's a couple others trying to do, is to, you know, completely seamlessly integrate the, the provider and the plan so that, you know, instead of offering sort of a list of providers and then the kind of old school model, the shorter the list is, sort of the worse it is, you know, that's a skimpy product or that's a narrow network product, but to sort of kind of flip that whole thing on its head and saying, we're you know, we're offering you these these providers that are going to give you this particular kind of customer experience and nobody else is going to have access to these providers except for people that enroll in this plan. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, there's actually a lot of things going on that you might be interested in, even if you're not sick, if you're interested in your health, you might be interested in, you know, interacting with these, you know, these locations, which we try not to make look too clinical and we're going to make a lot of efforts to give you really great customer service and just to really borrow a lot of, you know, successful attributes of the service sector, which, you know, I think is actually kind of a breakthrough. We're talking with Catherine Hempstead from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, Bob Town from Wharton's Healthcare Management Department. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. I guess the other piece to this, Bob, is that with... United moving out potentially in some of these locations, you will have some states, from what I'm reading, that are only going to have one insurer in some of these locations, which in some respects leaves a monopoly uh, for some of these companies. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, according to the Kaiser Foundation, about 24% of counties will have only one insurer operating on the exchange that, so that consumers only have you know one plan to choose from. And I think that's probably the, the biggest concern here is that there's going to be increase in market power of insurers in, uh, in many uh, locations. Um, and how that translates into premiums actually gets a little complicated here yeah. because of the nature of the subsidies and the nature of um, – of selection and and risk selection um so how that's going to shake out as far as the premium experience of enrollees is a little uncertain but probably for most enrollees that are getting substantial subsidies it won't have a big effect it actually okay. may have a bigger effect on the government's uh <laughs> payout yeah um mm -hmm. to the insurers Catherine. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, of course, a lot of these markets were not very competitive before the ACA, but, you know, it's, it's difficult to compare the individual market pre and post. But, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that is that is the case. And there's going to be some places where the remaining carrier or carriers are going to have a lot more pricing power 
How successful has it been for the insurers in general, Catherine, the, 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 first, uh, the first couple of years that we've had this in, in operation? I, I mean, I think I think most carriers have, you know, noted some some difficulties in this market. It's you know, it's it's hard to think of a lot of carriers that have you know said they've had um, you know unambiguously positive experiences. I think people sometimes point to the Medicaid MCOs as having you know some of the best looking numbers, you know, like Centene, Molina, companies like that. But I mean, it definitely think there are some some headwinds with this market but but on the other hand i do think and i'd be curious to know what bob thinks i mean i i do think that the idea that consumers are going to directly buy their health insurance i think that's something that the insurance industry thinks is is going to happen whether for some it's kind of mediated by some sort of employer environment or whether it's you know in a more public exchange or medicare advantage i mean I, I do feel like the insurance industry feels like they need to learn how to sell insurance to consumers. And I even think that a lot of consumers with employer-sponsored insurance are starting to, you know, say things like, I'd like to have more choice. I'm spending a lot of my compensation on health insurance, and I don't have that much choice about what I get. And I would like to have more of a say in what I get. So I think it's a skill they have to learn. But, you know, I'd be curious to see what Bob says. Yeah, I agree. I think this is, you know, exchanges are a part of a, you know, long, perhaps slow trend towards more consumerism in health insurance. And you saw it with Medicare Part D and Medicare Advantage, mm-hmm. and you're seeing it with the ACA exchanges, and you're seeing it with private exchanges for health insurance and employers um, trying to respond to employees' requests for more choice in the plans. Um, and so I think consumerism is kind of a, an important trend that's been going on for quite some time. And you're seeing new health plans pop up trying to address that, like Oscar out of New York. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I think it's part of the uh, the general trend that we're seeing in, in the health insurance marketplace. The I, I would say that there are places in the country that the exchanges seem to be doing well, and insurers are pretty happy with their experience there. Particularly California, I think mm-hmm. the plans are are making money in California, and there's a lot of choice, and there's a lot of um, enrollees there. So, you know, that's one area that seems to be working reasonably well. Is there a way in your mind then to take what is going on in California, and obviously the numbers of enrollees will be quite a bit less, I would think, in, in most of the other states where these plans are. But to be able to take facets of what is going on in California and make them, you know, basically set up a new demographic or a, a new plan in some of these other states, but pare down a little bit to fit a lower number of people and be still successful. Well, I think you hit on the big problem is many states don't have the population to really support a lot of insurers on the exchange. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you can think – and I think that's going to be the big challenge is places like Wyoming and yeah. and New Mexico and, you know, that are relatively sparsely populated that, you know, having you know having just one insurer might not be able to make money on the exchange just because there's not the scale to, to make it go. So then, Catherine, what is then the future of – uh, of the Affordable Care Act in states like Bob just mentioned, in Wyoming and and North and South Dakota and New Mexico? I think those are actually really, really challenging places, you know, and they were very challenging before the ACA, and they, they didn't really have functional non-group markets. And I think that there are some, you know, there are some really serious issues in, in those states. And um, I, I, I don't know what a solution might be, but, you know, I think that that will always be hard for carriers to make a profit. But I think, you know, in general for the for the exchanges, it would be really useful to to find some ways to kind of increase the 
the pool of people so that the products are more uh, affordable and that the carriers, you know, risk experience is a little bit better. And, you know, some of the things people talk about is maybe would it make sense in some places to merge the small group and the non-group market? Would that, would that be helpful? Yeah. Would it make sense to, you know, increase the individual mandate? You know, not not popular, but something that certainly, you know, people talk about um, in a place like uh, Nevada or, I mean, not Nevada, like um, a very, very uh, sparsely populated place, you know, would it make sense to let a state experiment with a less comprehensive product? You know, is that that's something that's, you know, not feasible right now. But, you know, could there be some accommodations made in, you know, other places that really have very different markets? But I think that, the you know, the problem with the, with the market is, is, you know, kind of who's missing. You know, there's it's, there's a lot of focus on the, the utilization of the people that are in the market, but I think the real problem is sort of the denominator problem is there, you know, there are people that are not sort of staying on board for the whole year, and then there are a lot of other people on the sidelines. Could we even see, I mean, I know obviously we've got insurers that are that are running in multiple states, but, but could we even see something like a, a a, a joint union between, let's say, North and South Dakota and Wyoming and Montana, you know, that obviously when you're putting four states together, it boosts the number of potential people you're going to have in that. Obviously, you'd, you'd have to change regulation and stuff like that. But that kind of an idea, could that potentially work, Bob? Yeah, that's built into the ACA. So in their states talking now about trying to mm-hmm. you know merge their exchanges to, to get to the scale and to reduce their fixed cost of operating these exchanges. I mean, there's a lot of challenges, just the state regulatory differences across sure. the yep. states yep. make it a little challenging to do that. But there are discussions going on now between state officials to do exactly what you propose. Catherine? Yeah, no, I think that is a good approach. I mean, the the problem with the interstate sales insurance has always been sort of state differences in insurance regulations and the kind of, you know, race to the bottom and all those, you know, kinds of things that are that are real issues. But there there could be places where there's a real advantage for everybody to sort of, you know, come up with a, you know, kind of a, a joint w- way to regulate the market in a couple of states. You know, I mean, I think that... Um, that that could be a really good approach for for you know less densely populated places. You know, you also could a lot of those places unfortunately haven't expanded Medicaid, but you know if they had, yeah. you could also think of another kind of you know waiver that might allow more people to buy into Medicaid at higher income levels, or you know sort of take advantage of some of the larger public programs that are already there. You know, if if you had you know in the in the in the event that Medicaid is expanded in those states, so that you could you know increase let even more people buy into it i mean i think that you have to be creative in the in the really sparsely populated rural areas and the other piece to it is is that as kind of bob alluded to Catherine, is the fact that you know if these conversations are ongoing right now then the powers that be understand that this this could be the best option to be able to move this forward and as we've kind of learned from government when people finally put their mind to something you know, it, there's a better possibility of it happening when they just kind of let it let it sit and lay around for a while. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's right. I mean, I I, I think that the the ACA is so frequently um, attacked that in some ways it's it's hard to talk about some constructive solutions that might improve things. And I think that you know, if if people could sort of jointly acknowledge that having a functioning 
regulated non-group market where people with pre-existing conditions could buy health insurance, you know, that that was something that was truly worth preserving, you know, both for the kind of, you know, human rights part of it, but also just as something that would contribute to economic efficiency if people would be able to, you know, buy insurance, you know, in this kind of environment, then I think that people would cooperate more to think about, you know, how can we tweak this market to actually make the experience better for the sellers and the buyers? Bob? Yeah, I think the the challenge here is that the temperature runs pretty high around discussing the, the <laughs> yeah. Obamacare and the, the Affordable Care Act. You think? And I think, that, you know, on both sides, there's a lot of uh, adjustments to how it's, you know, and I think it was anticipated knowing, you know, when the law was passed that, you know, this is not going to work perfectly. We know we're going to have to make tweaks along the way. Right. The part that wasn't anticipated is the, the temperature uh surrounding it and the difficulty is to make you know adjustments to how the programs are working to make it work better and benefit more people and be more efficient and reduce the government uh, expenditure on the program um, and I think it's a little unfortunate that the, the ability to have a kind of rational discussion about how to make it work better um, is, is difficult to have right now well and as you said that you know this has been such a political, hot potato for, you know, the last several years, uh, that this type of a story, just the story itself, starts to swirl minds and make people think, oh, well, you know, okay, you know, United is a big, well-known name. Whether they know, they understand the actual involvement they have in it, then people start to think about, well, okay, then, you know, is this is this a plan that's doomed? Obviously, it's not, but it's a process that does have the potential to work if you continue to work on it and, and figure things out. Yeah, I'd, and I'd, you know, bring it back to the United story, I think the, the long-run concern is, like, is going to be about uh, the availability of options for consumers in many, many places. It's how many plans are going to want to participate in the exchanges in areas where are going to be modest enrollment? And, yeah. and you know, if, if you know, this is uh, the whole premise of these exchanges and the ACA component uh, around the exchanges is that competition will lead us to better outcomes. And if there is, it's not an attractive marketplace for insurers to compete in, then yeah. you're not going to have much competition and the foreseeable benefits of competition aren't going to materialize. And Catherine, you almost get the sense kind of similar to what I was talking about before, that if you are going to have a few states that are going to come together and put together a, a, a joint plan uh, to work under the Affordable Care Act, that not not only do you need them to be, you know, they you wouldn't, I don't think, have like a New Mexico with a North Dakota. You would have a re, almost a, a regional appeal to this, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And there are such important regional differences in the way these, you know, insurance markets are, you know, have been regulated and how they've been organized and really how stable they are. And I think that that's one of the things that you can really see if you look at the way the premiums changed overall from 2015 to 2016, you know, on balance, you know, the average increase seems kind of high, like 9% or something like that. But when you really looked by census region, you could see that the less kind of, you know, stable or less organized kind of regions, you saw much sharper increases and the more kind of highly regulated established places like, you know, New England and the Atlantic were really very stable. And I think you're seeing still just so much, um, you know, I like, I like Bob's term creative destruction, you know, but just destruction, definitely just so much turmoil in some of these markets that this is all totally new. And, you're, you know, there are a lot of things that were priced wrong and there are a lot of things that have failed. But I think that 
you know, it just takes a little bit of time to reach some stability. But I do think there are some underlying challenges in places that just don't have enough population. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, you know, this is going to be a process, you know, it takes, you know, it, it took, you know, insurers, you know, 10, 20 years to figure out how to, you know, market and sell HMO products. So it, we should not be surprised that, it's, you know, after three or four years that there's a lot of churn and, and uncertainty about how uh, this market's going to work. Uh, yeah. It's just going to take time. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.